Do scents evoke memories and transport you back to being on the beach during your favorite vacation? I know they do for me. Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil smells like summer or the beach in Aruba, bottled with all natural uplifting notes of mango, mandarin, grapefruit, lime, and cypress. But it's not just about the elevated scent. This body oil is clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and deeply moisturize, leaving skin silky and soft. It delivers that coveted post-vacation glow, like you just returned from a tropical getaway. And right now, you can get 10% off your first order with our code YOGA at OseaMalibu.com. I love Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil. I use it every single day and I have for so many years. It makes me feel silky smooth and just glowing. This body oil is rich but never greasy and clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity. It visibly firms your skin, leaving you more sculpted and toned. No wonder I feel so great after using it. But it gets even better. With Osea, you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Osea's products are clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. They are a women-founded company that has been making seaweed-infused skincare for over 28 years. So bring on summer. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skin and body care at Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code YOGA at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to OseaMalibu.com and use the code YOGA for 10% off. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. Today on the show, we are going to have an uncomfortable conversation. Joining me today is Emmanuel Ocho, former NFL linebacker, Fox Sports analyst, and New York Times bestselling author of the book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. You might have seen his video series with the same name. This is a conversation about race, and however uncomfortable it might be at times, it's a conversation we all need to be having with the people in our lives. Today, Emmanuel answers many questions and maybe some you have been too nervous to ask in the past. We talk about white privilege, about bridging the idea of oneness and spirituality with racism and injustice. We talk about active ways to confront racism when we actually encounter it and how to go from being not a racist to an active anti-racist because they are not the same thing. I am so grateful for Emmanuel taking the time to talk to us about this today. Let's take a deep breath and dive in. All right. So thanks for joining. I know you're busy. I know this is like a crazy, crazy time for you. Uh, first of all, I want to start off and say super congratulations on the book. What a massive accomplishment. How do you feel? It's crazy. It, it, it's crazy. Honestly, I don't really get to tell this story often, but to think about like five months ago, I was just the sports analyst. Like that's literally what the whole world saw me as. And then I get thrust into this moment. I write a book out of just the plea and the cry for more information. And within five months, I go from not being an author to a New York Times bestselling author. It's mind boggling, it's mind blowing, but it's also when you know you're walking in your purpose. And right now I feel like I'm walking in my purpose. How beautiful. You know, I was watching your Instagram stories today. You were sharing. That was the best. It was so, so beautiful. So I'll let you tell the story, but you were sharing your first book that you ever wrote. Could you tell us a little bit about yes. that? So I went back home for this Thanksgiving. And you know, when you go back home, you start growing through and rummaging through old material. And Rachel, I saw a book dated in 1997. 
and it was titled My Birthday, written by Emmanuel Acho. And I was like, yo, I have to <laughs> show the world this. Now, mind you, this had no plot. So I, I, write, I write this book in 1997, apparently. I've forgotten now. Story had no plot at all. And I also like illustrated it. It was like a written and pictured book. All I could do was draw stick figures. Like the characters had no torso. It was legs straight to head. But it was so cool, Rachel, to see like that in 1997 was just a first grade me doing a school project as an author. I dedicated it to my mom and dad. And now to look back, what, 23 years later, and I have like a real book that I can like touch and feel and like my adult pictures on the back and Oprah's name is on the side. It, it just really like, it humored me. But then Rachel, it also encouraged me because you never know what you're doing when you're young that will blossom when you're older. Absolutely. And I think no coincidence that you just found that now. I mean, it's like some universal, you know, full circle. It's a, it's a beautiful book. It really is. It really is. I'm about halfway through. So I live, I live on a small island. It takes a while for me to, to catch up with the rest of the world to get things here. <laughs> but it's a beautiful book. And I just I wanted to really ask because ending up in the role of the educator when it comes to race, was this something that was part of your conversations around the dinner table at home? Was this part of how you grew up? Or is it something that you found yourself in this year as this? Because you're such a natural at it. Thank you, first and foremost. And honest answer, not at all. Like this is not something that Emmanuel Acho wanted to do. So many people think like, oh my gosh, Emmanuel, like, are you just so like ecstatic with, I'm like, let's not get this twisted. I played football for a living. Like I tackled people. It's not like I was sitting at home, like I can't wait to have conversations about race and racial reconciliation. No, Rachel, I was kind of thrust into this moment. And I will say, because I grew up son of Nigerian parents, I grew up Nigerian culture. But then Rachel, I went to this affluent, all boys, predominantly white, private school from grades five through 12. And I wore a white button down shirts and gray slacks and black socks and black shoes, a mandated uniform, but I was immersed in white culture. And so I was questioning my own blackness as a kid. Cause Rachel, I would hear Emmanuel, you don't even talk like you're black or Emmanuel, you're not that black or Emmanuel, yeah, you're black on the outside, but you're like an Oreo, black on the outside, white on the inside. So Rachel, I went through my most formative years questioning my own blackness. It wasn't until I played football in college and football in the NFL that I realized and I was immersed in black culture. So then I kind of became trilingual, if you will, being able to communicate fluently in white culture, black culture, and Nigerian culture. And that's allowed me the ability now um, to have these conversations. And was that something that you could bring home to your parents? And were they aware that there was this whiteness sort of ingrained in the school and in the culture where you guys lived? Was that a conversation that you had then? Or are your Nigerian roots so strong that that was never, never questioned? At home? It wasn't a conversation because it didn't need to be. Like my parents, they had a home health agency, their own private practice. We still had Nigerian youth groups I would go to. I'd go to Nigeria every summer on medical mission trips, doing uh, like $2 million of free medical work with 40 doctors and nurses. So my parents weren't even really cognizant when they came to America about racism. Because in Nigeria, everybody black. So like, you don't have to worry about racism. So 
that's not something that they were teaching in our household. They just wanted their children, me being the youngest of four, to find a way to achieve this so-called American dream. Hmm. And getting back to, to this year, this video series, so Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, for anyone who's been living under a rock this year, I mean, this, <laughs> these are so popular, these videos, and I really understand why. Can you tell us how it got started? How, how was the seed sort of planted and how did it become this, this big? You want the long version or the short version, Rachel? I want the good version. Great. After the murder of George Floyd, uh, remember, eight minutes, 46 seconds, the white police officer kneeled on his neck. I was distraught. I'm, I'm pacing through my house in Austin, Texas, my two-story townhouse. I'm pacing down the, 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 the hardwood floors, and I don't know what to do. I'm like, do I cry? Do I throw myself into a wall? Do I go drive around the neighborhood? Do I yell? Do I go punch a punching bag? I don't know what to do. So I said, you know what? Some of my closest friends in Austin are white. So I'm going to go to their house and I'm going to have a conversation because I need to go talk to some white people right now. Just being honest. I was like, I need to go talk to some white people. I drove 30 minutes to the house in Pflugerville, Texas, and I'm sitting in my car and I gather my thoughts because I'm like, I'm about to go spaz on my white brothers and sisters because I just need some freaking answers. I collect myself. I go into their house. They open the door. Hey, Emmanuel. I'm like, sit down. We got to talk. We sit down around this kitchen table, Rachel, and I'm like, hey, what is it about Black people that makes white people so afraid? Like, speak gener generically for me, please. And over the course of the conversation, Rachel, they said, Emmanuel, well, what do you think the solution is? I said, the problem is white people do not have exposure to Black people in Black culture, so they don't know how to act or respond around them. Proximity breeds care. Distance breeds fear. There is not enough proximity between white and Black people. So I asked my white friend at the table, his name was Russell. Russell asked me, Russell said, well, Emmanuel, how can we be exposed to more black people? I said this, Rachel, I said, well, you know, you, you can go to black church, they're Christian people like myself. Russell responded this, and this is when the light went off. Russell said, I thought that was your thing. I said, light bulb moment. See, Russell's one of my best friends, known dude for 10 years now. But Russell, as a white man, didn't know the jurisdiction or lack thereof of Black culture and Black spaces. And so I said, if this fun-loving, God-fearing, incredible husband and father, if this man doesn't know the jurisdiction or lack thereof of Black spaces, how can I expect the rest of America? So I said, Rachel, it's time to have a conversation. And I said, mm -hmm. I'm going to preemptively answer questions that I know white people have because I know white people. So I've heard the murmurs of, wait, why can't we say the N-word, but Black people can? I heard the murmurs of, but what about Black on Black crime in Chicago? How come Black people only get upset when white people kill Black people? Black people kill Black people even more often. I heard the murmurs, Rachel, of, okay, but why all the rioting? I mean, I understand peaceful protests, but why the rioting? So I preemptively, Rachel, had to answer these questions because I realized that was my form of grief these conversations. And has it been, because that was one of, the, one of the first questions I had when I really was preparing for this interview, is has it been healing in any way for you to have these conversations or is it mainly triggering? Because there must be a huge portion of this that's just exhausting at times. You know, how, how does it feel really to be in these uncomfortable conversations with white folks who don't maybe know so much or haven't taken the time prior to this year to actually learn? For me, it's been incredibly encouraging and it's been incredibly healing. Not so much for me, but Rachel, I'm very solution oriented. In life in general, I hate 
complaining about problems without solutions. Oh, if I feel like I look uh, a little a little softer, I'm gonna go work out. If I feel like I need a haircut, I'm gonna go to the barber. Like I'm going to find a solution for the problem. So when I'm looking at racism and racial inequality and the lack of understanding in America, I'm gonna have a conversation. And the response, Rachel, has been so amazing. The fact that 70 million people have watched the videos, over 55,000 book sales in two and a half weeks. Like the response has been so amazing that it's so encouraging. Uh, and, and, it, and it literally, the people are the gasoline to my car that keeps running because the people keep me going. Like, yeah, is it tiring? Of course, I've been tired for five months straight, literally. Like I, I've, I've never been rested for the last five months. I wake up tired, I go to sleep tired, I wash, rinse and repeat but it's worth it. There, is, there are times in life, Rachel, where there is just exhaustion. And this is a cause that is worthy of my exhaustion. Sometimes in life, skepticism can serve you well. It can save you money, keep you from wasting a day at a timeshare presentation, and help you avoid spreading gossip. To be honest, when I am faced with a new scenario, I usually tend to be a skeptic until something proves me wrong. And if you're like me, you can probably spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from a mile away and read labels like it's your job. That's where Ritual comes in. They know that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. Their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin has high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. Take two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption and you'll get nine key nutrients. Rituals Essential for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. On top of that, Ritual multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp and made traceable. I take my vitamins every morning with breakfast. It's part of my daily ritual and I feel so good doing it. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash yoga girl. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash yoga girl for 25% off. So what can we do for you to take some of that exhaustion off your shoulders? Because the deeper we go into these conversations and it's so you know, wonderful and, and, and amazing the space you are holding. And I can tell you're really in your calling with this amazing energy, but it's also, it shouldn't be your responsibility, right? It's a problem created by white folks. So isn't it on white people's shoulders to actually fix it? I, that's, that's correct. And remember my first episode, Rachel, I said this, if white people are the problem, only white people can be the solution. Now, that's not to absolve my black brothers and sisters from their incredible ability to help unite the world right now. But Rachel, intention without direction is meaningless. How can the blind lead the blind? How can the lost lead the lost? So how can white people who don't inherently know about the issue fix the issue if they don't know about the issue? Now, they can watch documentaries and they can read books, which is why I just wrote one. But Rachel, firsthand experience is always best. It is always best. So rather than saying, okay, white people, you're on your own, figure this out. I said it like this. If white people, my white brothers and sisters are finally willing to listen 
it will not be for lack of Emmanuel Acho speaking that they did not hear. So if they're finally willing to listen, it's not going to be because I didn't speak that they didn't hear. So yes, they're white people, they definitely have a responsibility. My white brothers and sisters, I've been begging y'all for six months now, but let me help you help me. What's the most asked question that you've gotten so far? Is there one that continues to repeat that seems like a big one? The most asked, the most pertinent, the most volatile is white privilege. Because white privilege is the gateway to having this conversation. And I've said it like this. White privilege is not saying your life hasn't been hard. White privilege is simply saying your skin color hasn't contributed to the difficulty in your life. See, so many white people hear this term white privilege and like, wait a second, my life was hard. I was lower class. I was middle class. I was working class. It's not saying your life hasn't been hard. It's saying your life hasn't been hard because you are white. See, Rachel, I have, uh, at this point in time, famous person privilege, right? I was walking down Beverly Hills the other day. I walked into a restaurant. I ordered. The, 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 the cashier said, Emmanuel, I love your show. Your meal is on me. The meal wasn't free because I'm black. The meal wasn't free because my name's Emmanuel. The meal was free because to that person, I was famous. See, just all, all privilege is, is access, special access to certain things or immunity from certain things. My fame got me special access to a free meal. There is whiteness, which in America grants people immunity from certain things or access to certain things. Black sounding name, white sounding name, equal resumes. Studies show the person with the white sounding name twice as likely to get the job, equal resumes. Our country, our world, isn't really based off of meritocracy, Rachel. It's actually based off of nepotism and cronyism. You hire your friends, cronyism, nepotism, you hire your family. So if our world, if America was not our world, but America was founded by white men, and our world is based off of nepotism and cronyism, the white men will hire white men, or on occasion, rare occasions, white women. And white men will hire their friends, white men, or on rare occasions, white women. So how in the world can we change this? That's probably the most asked question. And I hope that that response graciously does justice to solve. It's a great, great, great answer. And I, I, I find myself in these conversations constantly and all the time. There's something around, I don't know if it's the term white privilege that's triggering to white folks for some reason, or if it immediately suggests that maybe you didn't work so hard and everyone is really sensitive about working really hard. And so once we realize, and, and this is a big thing, I mean, also um, me coming from the wellness community and the yoga world, it's a, it's a big spiritual lesson in actually unpacking this privilege. Sitting with the big questions the way I have this year, if I wasn't white, would I be where I am right now? Would I have, have had these doors easily open to me the way I never had to question things? Would my experience have been the same? And it's hard, hard, a hard road to go down to, but also very rewarding because once our eyes are open, we can do something with that privilege. Absolutely. So how, how do we get there, especially for people who maybe are really reluctant to the idea of, I don't want to acknowledge that I have it, but then once we do, what should we do with, with the privilege that we have as white people? Well, I think we have to understand a couple of things. Number one, don't feel guilty because you're privileged. Like guilt doesn't cause someone to change. Love does. See, I, I'm, I don't feel guilty because people might recognize me in LA now. What benefit does that do? Oh man, I got recognized again. 
<sighs> like that doesn't make any sense. But I'll say it like this. There's a company that gives me a celebrity card. They sponsor me because I am a celebrity. And with that celebrity card, you can eat for free at this restaurant once a day, whenever you want. However, you also can throw a party for 100 people once a year. I've routinely, the last four years, thrown that party for the homeless. I've used my privilege to benefit those who don't have it. So rather than feeling guilty because you are privileged, how can you use your privilege for the benefit of others? See, I have able-bodied privilege. And, you know, it'd probably be a little ignorant of me to think that, you know, if I was born differently, that I'd still be where I am. We all, to a degree, have privilege. What's the adjective or word that precedes privilege? So I would just submit to my white brothers and sisters, don't feel guilty about your privilege. Just use it for the benefit of those around you. Uh, another question that that comes up a lot also in the the world of wellness and the world of yoga, I think this is probably the the biggest one I see in my own space whenever we have conversations around race. And it's the the question of oneness, the question of aren't we all the human race? You know, shouldn't we all just get along and focus on what unites us instead of what separates us? Could you touch a little bit on that from your perspective? The only way to love one another fully is to identify one another fully. It's the only way. The only way we can truly love one another fully is if we identify one another fully. What makes us unique? What makes us different? What makes us special? What makes us tick? That's the only way. So although it's well-intended, it's ignorant of us to say things like, well, I don't see color. No, I want you to see my color and appreciate it. I want you to see my culture and appreciate it. We can't just act as though we're going to ignore things that make us who we are. And, and the other thing is, Rachel, that ignorance is not truly bliss. What do I mean? In our judicial system, we have degrees, murder. We have first degree murder. Rachel, that's premeditated. I've thought about it. Second degree murder, that's a crime of passion. Then you keep going down those rungs, you have involuntary manslaughter. I would submit to my white brothers and sisters, many of you all may be committing involuntary racism. You don't know you're being racist because you're not cognizant of it, but you actually are, and that is emotionally killing your black brothers and sisters. When I was 13 years old, Rachel, and they were saying, Emmanuel, you don't even talk like you're black. They weren't trying to be offensive. I think they were trying to pay me a compliment. I got a, somebody tweeted at me just yesterday, you're so smart for a black man. No, 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 just say you're smart. Like it's not, there's no need for the caveat of for a black man because that's to imply that black men are not smart. So how can we grow past this, Rachel, by identifying it? You cannot fix a problem that you do not know exists. We all know that this problem now exists. Let's work together to fix it. I have a fairly unique upbringing in terms of that, in terms of it bringing up things that I'm realizing now in this conversation for the first time. I'm Swedish, born and raised in Sweden. And Sweden, I don't know how much you know about Sweden, but it's very unique in the fact of people being extremely non-confrontational. No one really wants to have hard conversations around anything. And Sweden prides itself of everyone is welcome. Everyone gets along. We're all in this together. So we were taught and pretty explicitly in school to be colorblind, to really, you know, they would talk about this in school. We don't see each other's color. We don't see each other's differences. We are all here together. 
And I realize now that this idea of, of colorblindness has probably been my biggest obstacle when it comes to, 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 to doing anti-racism work and actually being able to acknowledge that I have things to unpack. Because if you think that there is no color, I see no color, you also see no problem. What would you say to that? Because I think there's a lot of people who have this idea of, I'm a little higher than everybody else, you know, I'm more spiritual. I don't see black or white or anything in between. We're all, we're all the same. I would say that that is unintentionally ignorant. Here's why I say that. My dad's a pastor, so I grew up in the church. So when you talk about spirituality, I lived it and I breathed it. So many people after George Floyd was murdered, they called me and said, Emmanuel, it's not about race, it's about grace. Or Emmanuel, it's not about skin, it's about sin. And I'm like, no, you all don't understand. Sin and grace are playing themselves out through race. So in fact, those two things are not mutually exclusive. It may in fact be about both. It, it, it's, but it's quite literally to be color, it's quite literally impossible to be colorblind because Rachel, the world feeds us so much information about color, what do I mean? Watch a movie, watch a, a criminal movie. Who is the victim and who is typically like the murderer? Like Rachel, I'm sitting in a movie theater as a black man, true story. One, there was one movie where the victim was black and the criminal was white. And I was like, huh, this is weird. Like that, that's backwards because the world has so often fed us what we're supposed to believe about color and about culture. So it's impossible to be colorblind because we have eyes, because we have emotions, because we have a brain, because we're so often fed information. We have to actively dispel the information that we're fed. That's the issue at hand. We have to be active about dispelling and defeating our thoughts. We have to be proactive instead of reactive. How wonderful would that be if we had a if we had a world of proactive people instead of reactive people? Unfortunately, we're not there yet. One of the really or one really eye-opening section of your book that I had to kind of take a pause and really think about this was, uh, I think this was chapter five or, or six, you were sharing that how often do we hear that, oh, this is the first time ever a black person is receiving this award or the first ever chairman of this board that, that's black. When was the last time you ever heard someone say, oh, for the first time ever, a white person has done something? And, and that just stopped me in my tracks. Never, not once. How, I guess, what, what is that experience like and how can we go about normalizing the opposite of whiteness? Normalizing, I guess, evening out the playing field in a sense so that we actually can have, so it shouldn't be remarkable, right? That's what I'm trying to say. It shouldn't be <coughs> remarkable for someone who isn't white to do something for the first time, but it is because we haven't seen it. We have to acknowledge, one, the fact that the playing field has not been leveled out historically. And two, that'll take a while, Rachel. Like, and no fault of yours, no fault of mine, no fault of anyone's listening. But the, what was it? Like the first black college was founded, I think, 150 years after the first white college. Like there's just, there's a two, 300 year head start for white people. And so when you hear like Barack Obama was a president, he was the first black president because to be a president in the United States is to be white. It's like I played in the National Football League. To be an owner in the National Football League is typically to be white. So when you accomplish something as a black person, it's an accomplishment. The, the problem is, Rachel, that 
we act as if like these issues we're dealing with are so new. I went to a private school. It wasn't until 1976 that, that uh, segregation was federally outlawed in private schools. 1976. So we can't be surprised when we're still hearing the first this and the first that. Because remember, nepotism and cronyism. So it shouldn't be surprising. The only way to normalize it is continue, to continue to live and to continue to try to let it truly be a meritocracy and the white, my white brothers and sisters in power to actually cognitively and consciously level the playing field. I love that. It's a, it's a long journey, you know, if we, if we look ahead and imagining a world where we do have a level playing field, where it's no longer remarkable every time a, a black person does something for the first time, but where it's just normal, regular society. Yeah. What would you say to people, because I know a lot of young people are actively doing their very best right now to have these conversations with their folks, with their families, with people they come across in their day to day. And a lot of people wrote in, young people wrote in saying, I am reaching a wall with my parents, with my grandparents, with my colleague, where I feel like I can't go any further. And it's, it's, it's driving me crazy. Have you encountered any of any of those people this year? I mean, I'm sure you have. And do you have any advice for people who really want to kind of push push them over the edge, I guess? Well, number one, I would say this. If you were to run, I love track and field, one of my favorite sports. And the people who run the 100 meters, they have a certain type of spikes, the shoes that they wear. Now, the shoes that they wear are not comfortable. They're not comfortable enough to wear while running a 5K, if you will, but they're comfortable enough to wear while running 100 meters. We have to put on our distance shoes. We have to prepare to run a long race. Like everyone listening, take your spikes off. I said this, I, I end the book with this. Sorry, Rachel, I'm spoiling it for you. But my last line is, racial equality is not a finish line we will cross. It is a road that we will travel. So we all have to realize, hey, there's not a finish line that we're going to say, ta-da, we did it. We're equal now. We have to choose to travel that road. So I would submit to my white brothers and sisters, pace yourself. You in for a long journey. The other thing I would submit is start with history. Start with facts. And the facts are very simple. Something called redlining existed, where literally the government would draw red lines around cities and districts and black people were secluded to the areas in which the red lining was drawn around and banks would not give proper loans to those specific areas. Why does that matter, Emmanuel Acho? That matters because there are two ways to acquire wealth in America. What are the two ways? Property and education. So if redlining diminished property for black people and 50% of public school education is funded by property taxes, then redlining also diminished education for black people. So if the two ways to acquire wealth in America are via property and education, and in the 1950s, redlining occurred, then there's really nothing to dispute there. Like, I'm just submitting facts. I rarely, I, I'm not really submitting opinions. I'm submitting facts. Start with the facts and go from there. And go from there. Something I, and this is something I, I encounter in my own family and extended family is, well, we don't have any racist laws anymore, you know, like segregation is over. All of this is in the past. Aren't we all, you know, can we all just get along right now? What do you say to that? Because I know there's plenty of, of, of conversations like this around the holidays and around 
dinner tables right now? I would say that there are some unwritten rules in life in general, and we all have them, right? In, in, in dating, uh, you wouldn't date your best friend's ex. It's not a law, but it's an unwritten rule, Rachel. You just kind of know like, yeah, <laughs> you wouldn't do that. There aren't necessarily still laws that exist for promoting racism, but there are still kind of unwritten rules. And I think some of those unwritten rules, when you talk about gerrymandering as far as the political spectrum, some of those unwritten rules, when you talk about ownership across Fortune 500 companies, across NFL organizations, there are certain unwritten rules that I think still persist in our society. And I also would say, let me say it like this. I said this in my first episode of Uncomfortable Conversations with the Black Man. I hope this lands home. On a track, the track is 400 meters. That big red circle that you see with eight lanes drawn in is 400 meters around once. Rachel, if someone were to give you a 200 meter head start, you start 200 meters ahead of Emmanuel Acho, and then the starting official blows the gun and says, go. Just because we started at the same time does not mean I have made up for that 200 meter head start that you have been given. So just because white people and black people are now born into America at the same time, and the starting official has said, go, it has not made up for that 200 year head start that my white brothers and sisters have been given. So I understand that present day, it may appear as though all things are equal. I would submit that they are not. Remember, there's implicit bias. Remember what I told you all about black sounding names, white sounding names and resumes. But though it appears that everything is equal, remember, there was a 200 year head start. How can we make up for that? What are some actionable things that you recommend to young people who right now are really dedicated, wanting to make a real, real, real change in terms of perhaps in school or if they are running their own businesses or just out in their communities right now? Do you have some actionable suggestions that maybe they can take home and get started this week? Absolutely. Number one, exposure. It was not enough to outlaw segregation, Rachel. We should have mandated integration. Wasn't enough to outlaw segregation. It wasn't enough to say, okay, you can no longer keep white people from black people. We should have mandated that white people and black people intermix. Why do I say that? Rachel, I told you, I grew up in a Nigerian household where you must be a doctor, you must be a lawyer, you must be an engineer. Like that was my household. You gotta be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. Because of that, Rachel, I didn't grow up with any dogs. Emmanuel Acho didn't grow up with any pets, no animals. Nigerian household, you ain't growing up with no animals. So now Rachel's a 30 year old man. I can't decipher the difference between a dog that's a pet and a dog that's a threat. Cause I was never exposed to them when I was younger. So I'll be walking through a dog park with my friend. Oh my God, that dog is so cute. My friend will be like, whoa, that dog has rabies, relax. How did you know? Moments later, my friend will go pet a dog and I'm like, no, calm down. I'm like, what do you mean this dog's just so sweet? How did you know? See, because I wasn't exposed to animals when I was younger, so I can't decipher. In the same breath, black people, if you're not exposed to white people, you can't decipher between a white person that's a racist and a white person that's racially ignorant. White people, if you're not exposed to black people, you can't decipher between a black person that's cold and has his hood on or a black, per that might, a black person that might be up to something mischievous and has his hood on. So instead, what do you do? You do the same thing I do when I'm looking at animals. The bigger the dog, the more dangerous it must be. The larger the black person, the more dangerous they must be. 
So the, the actionable item is to expose yourself to color, expose yourself to culture. Now, I'm not saying go buy a black friend like a pair of shoes. Yes, let me get one size 14, please, all black. No, like I'm not saying do that. But what I'm saying is be cognizant about your spaces. If you live in your white neighborhood and your white cul-de-sac and you go to your white church and your white small groups and your white school, push against that. Are there black youth leagues? Are there more culture? Are there more multicultural youth leagues? More multicultural small groups? If you're not exposed to anything, how in the world can you be educated or have empathy for that thing? Hmm. This is reminding me of of my own beginning of 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 this anti-racism journey. Was a couple of years ago, I was dumbfounded, couldn't understand why on earth we didn't have more black women in our yoga teacher trainings. They are predominantly white and we would have these conversations internally in our company, in our business. Well, how are we going to go about this? And I don't understand. And let's try marketing. Let's try here and here. It never occurred to me to go ask one of my black friends, go ask a black person, how would you feel more invited into this space? What can I, can I do to make sure that you feel included? But we were trying to kind of navigate this you know, in these white spaces, which didn't lead us anywhere. And so I find oftentimes that the, what feels like big, challenging, uncomfortable conversations often have a really easy, simple answer, like ask right. a question. And that leads me to my, to my next question. So, and, and, and I, I hear this sometimes is, as a white person, I am so scared I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm so terrified coming off racist. I'm so scared I'm going to use the wrong word or not be correct. So I'd rather just be quiet. Do you have anything to say to that? Growth is not bred from silence. Growth is not bred from silence. The only way that we can grow is if we speak and if we learn. I say the only bad question is a question unasked. Now, it's not accurate, right? Your teacher would be in class. There are no dumb questions. There are definitely dumb questions. And the best way to avoid dumb questions is through a little bit of education. But what I will say is this, no one cares what you know until they know that you care. So for my white brothers and sisters and my black brothers and sisters alike, once you have a true forged friendship relationship, ask away. Like I love when my white friends come to me, hey, Emmanuel, this might be ignorant, but like, why do you get a haircut every week? Whatever the case may be. Hey, this might be ignorant, but like, why do you put on lotion so often? Because there are cultural and color-based differences. And you will never learn until you ask. So now with that being said, my black brothers and sisters need to give grace when ignorance occurs and we can't cancel people for dumb things. But let me say this and I'll end, I'll end, I'll end my thought with this. We need to do a better job of judging the intention and not just the action. Because sometimes the action is, is, is misplaced, but the intention is pure. So if we did a better job of judging intention and not just action, then we could dictate um, how we should respond to different people. Hmm. Thank you for that. Do you feel overall hopeful? I do. Maybe a tough question for 2020 overall, but. No, I do. And I do because hmm. after my first episode, Rachel, I got an email from a 73-year-old woman named Lynn. And the email said, it said, Dear Emmanuel, I've recently watched your episode. I grew up in the 40s and 50s in rural Alabama, and I didn't go to school with any Negroes, In quote. After watching your episode, I realized I still need to change. Please don't give up on me. I love you, my brother and my son. 
you can't not be hopeful when there's some 73 year old sweet woman named Lynn who acknowledges that like, hey, I grew up racist and racially insensitive. And I realized I still need a change. Like, don't give up on people like me. And I love you, my brother and my son. And I wasn't offended by that. I have a biological mother. I saw her over the weekend at Thanksgiving. But we need to see each other more as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. That's why in my first episode, I say, dear white brothers and sisters, because I want you all to know, I want my white brothers and sisters to know, there's endearment. I care for you. Please care for me. And for that reason, I'm hopeful. Hmm. I feel you there. And I feel that big, the big heart that lies, you know, at the, at the center of this, of this conversation. And it's layered with so much pain and trauma and, and, and it's beautiful how I can just see in your eyes, this, this connection, even in these uncomfortable moments. And I'm sure you've had, you've had many over this year. So I like to, to close every podcast with the same question. So to everyone listening right now, all of us here present with you, how can we be of true service to you today? The best way to be of true service is to intentionally be anti-racist as opposed to not racist. Let me explain the difference. Being non-racist is to not participate in racism, but let racism be participated in around you. You're at the Thanksgiving table, you're at the Christmas dinner table, and you're not making a racist or racially insensitive remark, but your family and friends are. That's non-racist. Anti-racist, speak out when you see or hear it. The only way, Rachel, that our world will improve is if we are all cognitively and consciously anti-racist. Again, it's not our job to change the whole world. You just got to change your world. You ain't got to change the whole world. When I was a kid, I used to play with dominoes, Rachel. The, I'd stack a hundred in a row and I'd push the first domino and it would hit the second, which would knock over the third and the fourth and the fifth until the hundredth domino was knocked down. But see, what I realized as an adult, Rachel, is the first domino, it never had the intention of knocking over the hundredth. It only had to knock over the domino closest to it. So I would submit to everybody listening, don't think about knocking over or making more racially aware and racially sensitive the hundredth person, knock over the person next to you. Change that mind and change that heart and you'll see the domino effect in our world. Thank you so much. And thank you for all your time and effort put into this, this work. Thank you, thank you, thank you, really from all of us. Thank you. Of course, the pleasure is mine. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and a huge thank you to my guest, Emmanuel Ocho. Find more from Emmanuel on Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube, and don't forget to pick up his book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. You can find it at uncomfortableconvos.com. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you listen and subscribe to other great episodes of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. You can find them on yogagirl.com, on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you normally get your shows. Don't forget to leave a review while you are there. Thanks to everyone at Cadence 13 for their production work. And of course, thanks to my sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. I'll see you next week.